Good afternoon. <clears throat> I'm Ian Vasquez. I direct the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. When the Arab Spring uh, broke out, it took most observers by surprise, at least in its suddenness, and the speed in which it toppled long-lasting regimes in the region. Complex societies often defy predictability, all the more so when they are repressed and thus volatile. The Middle East and North Africa has proven to be no exception in the years since the uprisings uh, broke out in Tunisia in December uh, 2010. And since then, uh, the reactions have included an outburst of optimism and hope for radical change, sobering assessments of the real scale of the challenges, and pessimism as the initial far-reaching goals of the uh, movements were not accomplished. But what has been achieved has been a vigorous debate about the nature not only of Arabic uh, societies but of Islamic societies as well, the meaning of liberty and democracy, and the compatibility of freedom with Islamic identity. To have spurred that debate is no small uh, feat in countries that have been closed off to the rest of the world. Uh, to give an example, according to one source, Spain uh, translates more books in a given year uh, than the Arab world has in the past 1,000 years. So it should be no surprise that changes uh, that the Arab world has gone through in recent years, including the spread of the internet and uh, that uh, the use of cell phones, have been experienced in very personal terms by many Muslims, especially uh, the young. Our main speaker today, Amir Nasser, is one such person uh, whose voice has been one of optimism despite the many setbacks uh, seen in the Middle East uh, recently. Having grown up in a number of Islamic countries uh, during a time of technological and social change, his story is revealing of the changes going on underneath the surface of Islamic societies. Reading Amir's book, My Islam, How Fundamentalism Stole My Mind and Doubt Freed My Soul, you get the sense of Amir's uh, journey, that it has really been uh, a journey of a, a discovery of freedom, uh, and that he's not the only devout Muslim uh, from the Arabic world going through that experience. Indeed, Amir has become uh, an eloquent spokesperson for liberalism and why it is appealing to a growing number of people in Muslim societies. But let him, I think it's best for me to let him tell his uh, story. So let me introduce him. Uh, Amir Nasser has been described by the economist as puckish. He is, as I say, the author of this book, uh, <clears throat> My Islam. And it has been recommended by Foreign Policy magazine in 2013 as among the 25 uh, books uh, to read. His work has also been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Guardian, and many other uh, outlets. Amir is an advisory member of the Human Rights, Founda uh, Rights Foundation's International Council, and uh, following the ban of his book in 2014, he is a political asylee and resident of Canada. Please help me welcome Amir Nasser. So I've got to admit, this uh, podium is pretty cool and makes me kind of want to speak in a, in a deep, powerful voice. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Pleasure to be here with all of you today at Cato. 
know, this is awesome. This is great. So my name is Amir Ahmed Nasr. My American name is Amir Ahmed Nasir. And I'll begin my speech today with some prepared opening remarks and then some conversational remarks. So as Ian said, I am the author of the searing memoir, My Islam, How Fundamentalism Stole My Mind and Doubt Freed My Soul. And as you may have noticed on the cover of the book, the A in Islam is instead an at symbol, which is really symbolic of the change that's going on. Thanks to the internet, thanks to digital media, free flow of information, free access to information, free speech online, which, as I would argue um, shortly, I think ultimately has a positive effect, despite the negative things we hear about ISIS, Boko Haram, using data to, to, you know, the internet to spread their heinous propaganda, their heinous footage, and to recruit people online. I do think that the influence is ultimately positive, hence the at symbol, which is rebellious, which on the cover of the book is graffiti sprayed on a wall defiantly, taking the A and chucking it out, doing away with rigidity and instead trying to find fluidity and substance and spirituality within a structure that has become calcified over time for many different reasons. So I am the author of that book. In the book, I tell the story of how the internet opened my eyes and heart to a world beyond the conspiracy theories and religious dogmatism of my upbringing. I tell the story of how the internet helped me discover that the Islam I grew up knowing in northern Sudan and in Qatar as a youngster was a politicized, authoritarian Islam mired by lies, deception, meant to control and subjugate. I tell the story of how the internet rewired the consciousness of a new generation of young Arabs and young Muslims and gave us a voice how the internet not just rewired our consciousness, but actually gave us a voice, a powerful voice, and how that collective voice eventually played an instrumental role in leading and facilitating the Arab Spring. The same Arab Spring, which, as you well know, politically failed to deliver in a really catastrophic way in some countries, with the exception of Tunisia which continues to progress and continues to move forward despite many, many obstacles. The same Arab Spring, which today I want to argue, is not completely dead. Yes, it is politically dead. Yes, it failed to deliver politically, with the exception of Tunisia. But other factors that gave birth to the Arab Spring continue. They're still here, and in fact, they're still growing and growing by the day. Before I tell you about those factors, I'd like to just share with you very quickly the prologue of this book, which can give you an idea of how my journey sort of played out. So I begin the prologue. He smacked her across the face, a violent thundering slap. 
The television seemed to reverberate with the impact. It was the climax of the show, and I had entered the living room uninvited. Why did he hit her? I asked my mom. Shush, not now, she replied, her eyes still fixed on the screen. I hated being ignored. What happened? What did she do? I continued insisting that I get an answer. I said, not now, Mama snapped back, now obviously annoyed. The woman collapsed on the floor and broke down in tears. The man who had hit her, clearly still enraged, stood tall above her and then shouted in her face, you're divorced, divorced, divorced. The words marched out of his mouth decisively and with absolute vengeance. I didn't want to risk getting a similar response from my mom, but I couldn't resist. Why did he say that three times? What happened, mama? How many times do I have to tell you? Not now, mama shot back, still not fully acknowledging my presence. Will you tell me later then, I asked, desperate to know if I would ever get to find out what the mystery was all about. Khalas, fine, yes, she assured me. My mom was busy watching an Egyptian series, and I was bored out of my six-year-old mind. I did my best to amuse myself, but neither my brother's Michael Jackson tape, nor my Ninja Turtle action figures, nor my well-worn superhero fantasies did the trick. After what seemed like forever, I sensed movement outside my room. My mom was done with her television show, so I rushed out to demand my answer. Will you tell me what happened now, Mama? What did, why did he hit her? And what was that thing he said three times? He got angry in his wife and divorced her, she responded at last. Still, I wasn't satisfied. Why did he get angry? What did she do? I continued. Later, Amir. Later, Mama replied. Later, many years later, I'd finally come to better understand part of what happened in that memorable scene. Generally speaking, in the Islamic tradition, a man can divorce his wife up to three times, after which it becomes extremely difficult, even virtually impossible, to remarry her. If a marriage is in trouble, but there is a chance of reconciliation, a husband will make the divorce proclamation, you are divorced just once to his wife. This leaves the door open for a change of heart. Even if enraged or disillusioned, he makes the proclamation twice, hope is not lost. Only deeply troubled, irreconcilable marriages end in a three proclamations divorce and a mushroom cloud of heartbreak and anger like the one portrayed in that Egyptian television series. Over the years, I found myself recalling that scene and wondering about the remaining questions. What did the wife ever do to deserve getting divorced with three fierce proclamations? Did her husband love her? And if he did, what changed? And why the hell did he have to hit her? One day, however, I partly understood. I experienced that kind of rage, the agonizing pain of feeling betrayed by one that I had loved unconditionally. I, too, longed to end it with that fierce finality. But my love was not a woman. It was my faith. Growing up, I loved my sci-fi cartoons. I loved my toys. I loved my Legos. I loved what I loved, especially when it lit up my creative imagination freely and in all its magical glory. But above all, I loved Islam. Therein lay all the heartbreak. 
For a while, there was a beautiful, spiritually liberating, mystical Islam that I loved as a child. Later, entwined with it, came another Islam that dictated that I should hold on to certain beliefs or risk burning in hell for all eternity. It erected tall, suffocating barriers between me and the magical curiosity and imaginative free thought I loved as a child. I didn't like that Islam. It was mean. It made me uneasy. But it was so thoroughly fused to the other one I revered and loved that I could no longer tell the difference. And so I believed without questioning, like a young man wedded to a stranger in a forced arranged marriage that he accepted for fear of betraying his family, I devoted myself to my faith. I practiced, worshipped, and swept doubt under the rug whenever it surfaced. I memorized long passages of the Quran, joined national recitation competitions, won and got featured in the newspaper. I listened to my bearded teachers, trusted them, and followed their instructions. I became wary of non-Muslims. You guys. I hated Jews, hated secularism, and doubted democracy. I had a love-hate relationship with the West and its leader, the big Satan, the United States of America. Finally, at the height of my deeply held jihadist euphoria, I wished I could die and martyr myself for Islam and occupied Palestine. I was 11 years old. What followed will not only surprise you, but it is my hope that it will inspire you to see various forms of religion in a fresh and more nuanced light. It includes tales about haunting melodic calls to prayer, a French girl named Doubt, anti-Muslim bigots, five pillars and a teddy bear, a sexy belly button ring, a soulful three-eyed beauty nicknamed Trinity, American bombs raining on a pharmaceuticals factory, and an accidental blog that turned my life upside down. This book is my story, part memoir, part manifesto for liberty. It's about my relationship with Islam and its guardians. It's about my journey from arranged marriage to infidelity, to the brink of irreconcilability, and back. It's a meditation on blogging and the internet, and how they forever altered yesterday's dictatorial politics of ignorance, and ushered in a new politics of knowledge that helped trigger and facilitate the so-called Arab Spring. It's about courageously following your heart's cause, finding your tribe, and doing what you can to help change the world. It's about the search for identity, meaning, and ultimately, truth. If you're someone who's had a difficult relationship with religion, or you have a deep interest in it, someone who's got a burning desire to help advance freedom, human dignity, and justice on our increasingly shrinking planet, someone who's passionate about personal and cultural transformation and self-empowerment, what I write is for you. If having your beliefs challenged boils your blood, this book is probably not for you. Lastly, if you value evidence, and if you passionately believe that God, or God, if you wish, shouldn't be reduced to ink on paper, but should instead be experienced, expressed, and honored freely, in love and ecstasy, and without coercion, then this book is certainly for you. I'm just going to take a quick sip. While I do end that prologue, 
about how this book for you if you had a difficult relationship with religion. I'm not necessarily here to talk about that in great detail. What I am here to elaborate on, however, is the fact that the internet can be, and indeed is, a force for liberation for many young Muslims, like it has been for me. Growing up in a close society like Northern Sudan and Qatar, you have to understand something. These countries, until these days, are dictatorships. And because they're dictatorships, by virtue of being dictatorships and having a ministry of religious affairs, something you don't have in the United States because it's a secular uh, country, ruled by a secular government, at least most of the time. Because you don't have that here, however, there we do have it. We have a ministry of religious affairs. And because such a ministry is attached to a dictatorship, do you think a ministry like that is going to promote interpretations of Islam that promote free thinking, that promote pluralism, that promote individuality? Of course not. They're going to promote interpretations of Islam that are about conformity, obedience, intolerance, rigidity. And that makes its way all across the education systems and all across state-controlled television. Thankfully, there are other popular forms of Islam that are sort of bottom-up. There are families that can guide their kids to a more moderate path. And lucky for me, even though I was in that environment, when I got online in 2006, I could have been swept into the wrong direction. There were jihadist forums back then. There was very nasty extremist literature on the internet back then. But extremist literature by itself doesn't do anything. As an individual, you have to have pains and wounds and grievances that make you inclined to consuming a certain kind of literature. Thank goodness for me, I had love from my parents. And even though I felt lost in the world, caught between East and West, by the time I was in Malaysia, in a British international school, caught between tradition and modernity, despite those struggles, I had positive influences in my life, and thank goodness, what I discovered first was not the jihadist forms, but instead I discovered the liberal Arab blogosphere in 2006. These guys had been blogging since 2004, and they inspired me to join. In 2006, I began my blog, The Sudanese Thinker, anonymously, with a pseudonym, calling myself Dreama, so that people wouldn't know who I am and not get to say what I want without any repercussions, because I was scared. And despite being scared and fearing the people out there, the governments, believe it or not, I was actually way more scared of the red lines that had been put into my mind by the education system and the religious authorities. Even though I was online and I could ask Google anything, dear Google, tell me more about the Prophet Muhammad. Dear Google, tell me more about the Quran or the Bible. No Satan, I could doubt, I could question, but yet, The red lines were put in my mind, and I was scared a lot of the time. Sometimes I would type those inquiries, and my hands would be sweating. That is the lever of mental control that such an education system can can, create in people's minds. Thankfully, though, with the liberal Arab blogosphere, I was exposed to so many blogs that talked about a lot of taboos, things that I was told not to question growing up in school, teachers caning you by religious authorities, right, who worked in concertion with the governments, and sometimes outside the governments, but still had a very authoritarian interpretation. And that was my idea of Islam. 
In 2007, for the first time in my life, I read the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. 2007, that's not long ago. I laugh about it right now. I can smile about it up here. But trust me, I mean, I, I was not smiling back then. In fact, after I had read the Universal Declaration of Human Rights for the first time in 2007, I was angry. I was outraged. I was livid. Because for the first time, I understood something profound that I had rights, and these rights were mine, but they were systematically stolen away from me in the worst kind of thievery. And the worst kind of thievery being the kind of theft that you don't even know happened. See, at least if I knew if something was stolen, I could have done something about it, but I had no idea it was done, and I grew up with that. And when I started questioning the adults around me, they just sort of talked about human rights as if they're privileges about liberalism and democracy and respect for minorities and free speech and equality as if they were privileges. Some people are privileged to have them in some countries. Others are not. Well, that's just life. Well, I say no. I say that's BS. I'm just going to say BS. I'm not going to say the actual word. You know, i got to respect this podium, right? But the blogosphere changed my mind. The blogosphere gave me confidence to express my voice. It gave me confidence in my own intellect. It made me break down the red lines that were programmed into me, and eventually I unshackled the dogmatism, and I got away from it, and I was not the only one. This story is not only mine. I am one of many. And the larger point that I want to make before I conclude is this. The Arab Spring did not pop out of just anywhere, randomly. The blogosphere, the liberal Arab blogosphere existence since 2004, and that built up and built up and built up, and Twitter came into the picture, and Facebook came into the picture, and that finally exploded onto the actual real world. People were getting fed up of having freedom online, but no freedom offline. And the protests mobilized in ways bigger than we had ever imagined, and the digital activists played an instrumental role. The guys whom I was part of, the network that formed since 2004 was a crucial part in that. But then, of course, the Arab Spring failed. Or did it? Politically, it failed. The factors that give birth to it continue. Digital communication is spreading. Smartphones are spreading. Yes, you have nasty literature spreading as well. Yes, you have people who are becoming more dogmatic. And you have groups like ISIS. But the silver lining of groups like ISIS is that it's causing a lot of young Muslims to question religious authorities, to ask hard questions, so that they can internalize their own faith and find their own paths to freedom in an indigenous way. And I think with the advent of online education, which is just starting in the Arab world, bottom-up innovation by digital entrepreneurs, many of whom I know, the fact that you have mobile payments on your phone and you have emerging nascent e-commerce, all of these things, I think, are going to have a very positive contribution. How they will play out, what kind of liberal institutions will emerge, I have no idea. It's a big prediction to make. I do not want to make it. But I think in some countries, we're going to see some good things happening, despite the catastrophes of today. And we have to acknowledge that. And so that's what I want to leave you away with. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. I would like to introduce now our next speaker, Suwakad Adnane, who is uh, currently pursuing her graduate degree at uh, George Washington 
University in Public Policy and Women's Studies in the Fulbright uh, Scholarship Program. She spent many years uh, prior to that in the development sector with uh, a number of NG international NGOs. She is a researcher at the Arab Center for Scientific Research and, Human Stu and Humane Studies, which is a think tank based uh, in Morocco aimed at promoting uh, the values of liberty, democracy, toleration, and the market economy throughout the Arab world. She's also a board member of the Istanbul uh, Network for Liberty, whose mission is to explore the principles and values of a free society in the Muslim world. She's also done and is doing a lot of work on the connection uh, between property rights and uh, women's uh, freedoms. And we look forward to hearing her comments. Thank you, Ian, for the introduction. Good, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. And I would first like to thank Cato for um, having me and for the opportunity to comment on um, Amir's book, a very interesting book I've just finished reading. Thank you, um, Ian, and thank you, Cato. Um, I'd like to start by saying that Amir's story is not a unique story. It's a story to which a lot of uh, young Arab people could relate to, I assume, very easily. I myself was smiling many times reading the book and coming across some details and some stories uh, of Amir that I personally had to experience growing up in Morocco. Although Morocco is a very different country with a very different history and demographic, uh, demographic threats, still it shares a lot and its context shares a lot with the context of the three mainly Muslim countries Amir has uh, described in his book, Qatar, Sudan, and then Malaysia. Um, I would like to first sorry, go over those major characteristics and threats. Um, Amir describes in his book, and that I find to be very common in Arab countries along with their political, economic, and social systems. First of all, the glorification of the past. In most of the Arab countries, in the educational system of the Arab countries, we tend to look back to the past and glorify it. We tend to look back to uh, the Islamic civilization and how great it was and uh, how Muslims were, once upon a time, the greatest nation and how they exported the knowledge, all the knowledge to Europe. It's a very good thing, actually, to look at because we don't have this anymore. But what I think what I find to be more dangerous is the fact that we don't look at the true real reasons that behind the Islamic civilization's decline. What they teach us at school is that the Islamic civilization decline was due to moral and religious, and religious decadence. While I think and I believe firmly that this decline was due to a decline in freedom, in civil liberties, not to moral and religious decadence. It's when Muslims stopped producing knowledge. It's when Muslim, and this thanks because of the Arab, the Arab state back then, because of the rulers back then, 
that oppressed free thinking, that oppressed liberty, and started uh, promoting uh, an interpretation of Islam, an authoritarian one that would serve their own interests. It's at that point that Islamic civilization started declining. It's, this is why now we're having what we have in the Arab world, I believe. Uh, the second point that you could um, come across um, um, throughout um, Amir books is the fact that questioning teachers' um, wisdom was considered to be rule and disrespectful. So imagine an educational system where children were not encouraged to question, were not encouraged to criticize. Um, within a context in which there was a lot of confusing, uh, there were a lot of confusing religious narratives. You hear one at home, and then you hear another one at school, and another one on the street, and another one on the internet, if you happen to have access to the internet. But the predominant discourse and the predominant religious narrative was one, one of fear, was one of punishment. And one great example Amir mentioned in his book was the story of the torture of the grave. I heard it when I I don't know, maybe I was six or seven years old, how bad Muslims uh, would get tortured in the grave before they, they would at last punished and, and, and in hell. That was very frightening, and a lot of children had exposure to this very extremist and frightening narrative of religion. Uh, religion was emptied of its spiritual essence and was mainly reduced to rituals and to a culture of fear. Um, doubt was perceived as being evil, as being Satan, actually. Doubt was portrayed as being Satan, and it was not at all encouraged to doubt things and criticize them. The Islamic rhetoric was used by, as, as Amir mentioned, by Muslim, by Muslim authorities, uh, by states, by governments mainly, to mobilize support of an abusive state, of, an, of, an, of the state that is promoting hatred, hatred of the West, that is, promote, that is accusing its opponents of religious and moral decadence to silence them, that is using the Arab-Israeli conflict as a way to promote further hatred, so it also as a way to divert people's attention from local issues and get them uh, busy with other with with a discourse basically of hatred and theories of conspiracy the state the arab state and i'm calling it i'm referring to one arab state because all the arab states shared those common traits and they seem to be really one basic characteristic of an arab state so to me, they're all the same in that they promoted a very authoritarian, a very um, extremist version of religion, indoctrinating the masses. There was a global politics of ignorance, I'm using Amir's words, through controlling education, controlling media, silencing dissent, and as I said, using and exploiting the Arab-Israeli conflict to promote hatred of the West, hatred of the United States. The huge, there was a huge economic gap between the rich and the poor, a gap that was basically caused by very communist, socialist-influenced policies, but also by failed, crony capitalist policies. So whatever was 
whatever comes and came from the West was perceived as evil. We had socialism and communism, it didn't work. Obviously, we had capitalism as well, but it didn't work. Crony capitalism didn't work because once again, there was that authoritarian Arab state doing all what it can to maintain power and to keep people blindly following and abiding by the rules. There were, and there are still cultural practices that are justified by religion and unfortunately packaged in it. So that we are living in a confusion between what is culture, we can no more tell what is cultural and what is religious. So in, in this context, within this context, as I said, that, did not, that does not only exist in the countries Amir has lived in, but, but in all the Arab countries, I believe, the internet was the only free space, the safer one, in which, through which Arab young people were able to express themselves, were able to experience values of liberty and democracy and free expression. It was also the platform for a regional solidarity. Again, Amir describes how... Um, the internet and the social media was a platform for bloggers mainly to support each other and defend each other's views of liberty and democracy. So the internet and social media uh, contributed very much to the onset of the uprisings in 2010, December 2010, uprisings that first started in Tunisia and then in an unprecedented snowball effect went and jump to the other Arab countries. The outbreak of the Arab Spring has led to various consequences. First, a political vacuum, because there was no political alternative. The Arab regimes, the authoritarian Arab regimes, did their best to prevent the birth of any other political alternative. So there was a political vacuum that led to the outburst of violence. Foreign, U foreign intervention, mainly U.S. intervention in many of those Middle Eastern and North African countries. The exploitation of Islam again um, in the political discourse, which is not very different from what the Arab states used to do in the past. It's just been pushed to its extreme now by ISIS and other extremist groups. Politicization of Islam is not a new phenomenon, as I mentioned earlier. It happened, it started centuries ago with the Umayyads, with the Abbasids, with, with, with the Ottoman Empire and all what follows, what, what followed. In the midst of all this and what is, what is, what generates hope is the fact that an awakening happened in the Arab world um, and have, has been developing since then. The breakup with the politics of fear, the re emergence of freedom of expression using social media and the internet, self-questioning, self-evaluation, more engagement of the Arab youths in the political process, in the social uh, change, a more, out a more outspoken discourse and, and more outspoken demands for liberty and dignity. These are all positive outcomes of the Arab, uh, the Arab Spring, although it was uh, a political failure, as Amir mentioned. But I think it is a social success in that it, 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 it sparked all those uh, positive trends um, towards uh, liberty. So what is next? What are the threats and how could this search for liberty be promoted? Could we talk about 
a system without Islam. The Arab youth's search for liberty is, an int is intertwined with also a search for identity, to which Islam, religion, is really vital. So in my point of view, it's just, it wouldn't be practical or realistic to do without Islam. It's very central to uh, the identity of Arab youths, the identity they are still looking for. But unfortunately, religion, and uh, namely Islam, is being portrayed as incompatible with those values of liberty and democracy. It's of utmost importance to start exploring this intersectionality. It is important to provide the Arab youths with a religious narrative that would be perceived as inherently compatible with values of liberty and democracy, to provide the youths with a narrative by which they would not, by which it is completely possible to be a pro-liberty advocate and a good Muslim. So I think this is the kind of um, alternative discourse we need in the Arab world. The state, the Arab state, has been promoting, unfortunately, an authoritarian religious discourse. It has uh, silenced all the other alternative discourse. They exist. It's not something that is to be uh, invented or that is to be created. Those discourses, those alternatives exist already. They've just been silenced by the state because they do not serve their interests. Um, if we look once again to the Islamic civilization and the works of Ibn Rushd, Averwes, as uh, Western people, non-Arabic speaking people know him uh, with, or we look uh, to Ibn Khaldun, who is a great free market uh, scholar who lived in 15th century and who talked back then about free market and how, how, about, how uh, heavy taxation lead to the, the fall of the states and to the uh, um, frustration of the people. So as I said, those alternatives exist, and now they are being revisited and re-explored by uh, young scholars, young Muslim scholars, uh, like Mustafa Akil, the Turkish uh, um, well-known scholar Mustafa Akil through his book, Islam Without Extremes, that I recommend uh, reading, uh, through uh, other scholars like the Iranian Abdel Karim Soroush or like uh, the Egyptian Nasr Hamid Abu Zaid. But unfortunately, once again, it's not, it's very challenging because these scholars would, would be would face a lot of challenges and threats by the state. Like Nasr Hamid Abu Zaid, who, was, who is an Azhar scholar and who was rejected and expelled by the Azhar uh, University and who was divorced from his wife by the Azhar uh, uh, religious authorities. So as I said once again, those alternatives exist and they are to be promoted. But they couldn't be promoted if we don't have first a free Arab society in which many, uh, in which debate is allowed, in which freedom of expression is allowed. Um, such an Arab society now, I think, is being uh, is taking more space, is being is is being promoted thanks to the gains of the Arab Spring. So the Arab Spring, I think, has 
made it possible to work towards that dream of that ideal of an Arab, of a free Arab society by bringing the worst out of us. So I leave you with this positive, hopeful note and thank you all for your attention. Thanks very much. We have time for, for questions now. If you have a question, please raise your hand and wait for the microphone to, to come to you. Uh, when I call on you, uh, please identify yourself and your affiliation. So if we have uh, any questions. One, one question that I would uh, begin with, uh, Amir, you, you mentioned um, ISIS. And that seems to be what is getting all of the attention. It is, in fact, drawing a lot of people from the region into the, into the movement. Um, do you have any sense of uh, how that compares with your uh, hopes and narrative of, of young uh, Muslims from the region actually uh, being drawn to liberalism? I don't have the exact up-to-date figures, but I believe ISIS managed to recruit in total about 50,000 fighters. Um, that is a tiny, tiny number. If the youth really wanted to join ISIS, they would have you know, gone there in larger numbers. Syrians have fled to Turkey, to Jordan, to Lebanon, and now to Europe. If they loved ISIS so much because it represented the ideal Islamic state, they would have gone to live there. The thing with ISIS is that 50,000 is not a large number, but even one person who's a crazed lunatic with the right weaponry can do serious damage. And so in some ways, I think that's why we pay a lot of attention to ISIS, because just a few of them, if they manage to sneak in through borders, to any nation states, they, they can do a lot of damage, and that has to be acknowledged, and it's a very, very serious issue. But in the larger cultural sphere, if you look at a country like Saudi Arabia, the top 10 YouTube channels in Saudi Arabia, the majority of them are very liberal-leaning. Uh, some of them are actually comedy shows that poke fun at religious figures to a certain extent, not too much, because... They know they can't cross certain lines, but they're pushing the boundaries of free speech. They're trying to hold their government accountable. They talk about pluralism and equality. They condemn sectarianism between Shiites and Sunnis. And these are the channels on YouTube in Saudi Arabia. They're getting the most number of views, and people love them and subscribe to these channels, and they spread such content. And so by far and large, if you look at the bigger picture, the shift is more and more towards those things. Now, it might not be liberty in the Western sense, admittedly, but it is sort of an indigenous, homegrown um, spirit that's really emerging, and I think it's something to be celebrated. And so ISIS is going to remain a huge, serious problem, and it's going to require a military solution and a political solution. And how that happens is a, a question that uh, I'm afraid I'm not qualified to answer. But as somebody who's very much engaged in the realm of digital media and online education, the larger trend is, is towards you know, what I mentioned. Bassem Youssef the, is the Egyptian comedian who has been called the John Stewart of Egypt. I was just with him a few months ago in Oslo, Norway. And even though he's disillusioned and you know, he's very heartbroken, as many of us are, by the tragedies that are unfolding, the fact is his YouTube videos and his broadcasts 
have collectively been viewed more than 700 million times. 700 million views. His show was absolutely unthinkable before the Arab Spring. Had he tried to do something like that, he would have been in deep, deep trouble. And so even though the show is off air because of repression, a younger generation of Egyptian comedians has also come online. They're poking fun at authorities. They're addressing subjects that used to be very taboo a few years ago, but now it's fair game. And that's really the larger trend. And once again, that needs to be acknowledged and celebrated. Question here in the, in the aisle. Thank you. Marianne Tupiketa Institute. Uh, on ISIS, um, the, the, the Islamic State uh, is surrounded by regimes that don't like it, uh, from Turkey to Saudi Arabia to uh, Syria. Uh, everybody's afraid of it. Um, uh, why don't the regimes, why don't the, the, the Arab states uh, do something about it, thereby uh, preventing uh, intervention from uh, be it the United States or Russia or anybody else? Um, why isn't there an action by the Arabs themselves to sort out uh, this, this, this particular problem? And one more question, if I may. Um, during the Arab Spring in Egypt, uh, the American government vacillated between, didn't really know how to respond to Mubarak. Uh, you know, are we in support of democracy, in which case we are going to get uh, Islamic Brotherhood in power? Um, or are we going to support uh, essentially secular dictators like Mubarak and now al-Sisi? Um, what, would, what would have been your recommendation and what do you think would have been the, recomm uh, would, have, what do you, what would have been the, the preference of the ordinary uh, young Egyptians? Thank you. All right, so for a moment I'm going to put on a hat and pretend to be a White House advisor to President Obama. Um, the first question, I'll just give a very quick answer. I think the Arab regimes have been used to the United States playing a leadership role and taking the lead on military intervention. And quite frankly, the opinion that I hold is that George W. Bush led a disastrous foreign policy. Iraq was a terrible mess, you know, after the invasion was done and after everything had happened. But unfortunately, I think also President Obama has been quite reckless, but his recklessness has been in the opposite direction, which was kind of stepping back too much and wanting to withdraw the U.S. troops out. I was not a supporter of the Iraq war, but the reality was what it was after everything had happened. So the Arab, the Arab governments are used to the United States taking a leadership role, and I think Obama has other priorities. And so right now they're, they're trying to figure out who's going to take the lead, who's going to step in. And I think it's also too late perhaps to arm certain Syrian rebels. Who do you arm? Who do you support? And that's, that's really the situation, you know? And there is a lot of fear internally about what to do in, in regards to the situation. So I'll leave it at that. In regards to your second question, which I think is a very important question, I think the ouster of Mubarak was the right thing. The United States keeps supporting regimes um, in, the, in the Middle East, in the Arab world, that are dictatorial and authoritarian for the sake of stability. And at the end of the day, the United States doesn't get stability and doesn't get freedom. Nothing happens. Saudi Arabia still continues to be supported. We'll see what happens as time goes by, but I doubt that the current status quo can be maintained. 
And so I think it's a mistake to support dictatorships. Having said that, is it an easy decision for the United States to say, okay, we're going to stop supporting dictators and now start supporting democracy? Well, even democracy itself, how is it going to emerge? As we just, you know, Suad and I talked um, and, you know, mentioned to you here, it's, it's still an emerging nascent movement, and the Arab dictatorships haven't created any space for political parties to emerge. And that's one of the reasons why in Egypt the Muslim Brotherhood won. Now, I will say this openly. I absolutely detest the Muslim Brotherhood. I think they're a horrendous organization. However, they do deserve to be part of the political process. And fortunately, when they did win, and Morsi was the leader, he led a disastrous government. He did not care about meritocracy, did not bring in ministers who were qualified. It was all about loyalty. And the rhetoric that they were spewing against the other side was just absolutely appalling and very dehumanizing. And they're using what we can call in Arabic takfir, which is calling the other side secularists and infidels. And that was very, very problematic. To this day, I'm very torn about what happened after that in regards to the coup. Some people say it was a popular back, you know, popular back coup. Others say it was not a coup. We can get into the technicalities of this. But what I wish had happened is that they had led to some extent, a little more responsibly, even though I don't like the Muslim Brotherhood. If they had won, they had won. And then vote them out. Vote them out. But unfortunately, Sisi went and committed the massacre in Rabah, and we have to acknowledge that. And I think that that actually has been really troublesome because for many Islamists, what they said is, well, we tried the path of democracy. Not that I think they were sincerely committed to it to begin with, but we've tried the path of democracy it was shut down, and gradual change is not possible, democratic change is not possible, and some of them are becoming radicalized, and they're saying, well, screw it, maybe we should join ISIS and support ISIS. So it was actually a win for the extremists at the end of the day. You know, there's no easy solution, but I think the United States has to exert more influence and more effort to support civil society, to support bottom-up innovation, bottom-up efforts. There's a lot of it going on, but frankly, not much support is, is being provided. And, you know, this is a big political discussion which has been going on for decades. It's nothing new. But at what point is it going to shift here in the current political discourse within the United States so that it can affect U.S. foreign policy? You could perhaps say in the old days there were no actors to really support, but I could tell you that a lot of youth movements emerging, and you're going to see a lot of institutional efforts coming in the coming years um, on board, and these will, re- will require support I'll just mention one last quick point. Startup incubators are emerging within the Middle East right now. This is a new phenomenon, and I think it's very exciting, and it needs to be acknowledged. American venture capitalists are also moving in to strengthen the local Arab startup ecosystems, and that is a great example of American citizens' private initiative, nothing to do with the government. People go in there and, you know, benefiting in a mutual way. The startups get funding. These guys get to have an opportunity in investments in emerging economies. And, you know, entrepreneurship gets promoted as a viable alternative to the lack of employment. That is happening. That is something great. And I wish we could see more initiatives like that, you know, at at the non-governmental civil society level, entrepreneurial level, and also at the governmental level. Question right, right there.
Uh, thanks to the, uh, for the panel. I'm Heather from Atlantic Council, and I have two questions too. The first question is, uh, like from my own experience, I've already seen some uh, an increase in Arab students studying abroad in America, going to Western universities. So how do you think like being immersed in a Western education and culture would change uh, the landscape of liberalization in Arab countries. And also the second question is, um, the Middle East is technically in Asia continent, but it's really rec recognized. So in comparison to its uh, relationship with the West, what is the its relationship with other countries in Asia? So I'd really like to take that one because okay, sure. <laughs> because I'm still a student. <laughs> yeah, I think it's very important the this sort of I would call it cultural exchange between the U.S. and Arab countries, and it should be a two-way exchange because when students Arab students come to the U.S. for studies, and I'm one of them, they see they're closer to the truth. They see more clearly how things work, and they are more immersed in values of, of liberty and democracy. And they see also what things do not work. So it's very, it's very important. Um, as a student, I did my internship at the Cato Institute this past summer, and this was a great experience in the sense that I experienced more closely the world of policy making and what, what is uh, uh, underneath it. And what 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 motivates it so it's 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 very important but then once again i emphasize the point that it should be a two way exchange it's by allowing americans as well and and people from other countries to go and experience life in 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 in, in arab muslim countries it's only through this i think they could see that and and they could break up with the stereotypes first. And for, I know it's not, it's not easy when you have all the media influence, when you don't have any other uh, version of the truth. So it's the only thing that is transmitted, that is portrayed to you. So if it is a two-way cultural exchange, I think it would be, and I think in some sense it is, it would be mutually, uh, mutually beneficial. Right here. Right there, yes, thank you. Thank you, Gerald Chandler of iTech Consultants. I'd like to follow on the last question, which I thought was very good. In those cases, particularly in Qatar, where you have a strong, large foreign pol uh, population, I think to some extent that's true in Malaysia, what effect does having those foreign pol uh, populations have in those countries? In some ways, it's negligible. In other ways, it's significant. And it really all depends about your, it depends on your individual experience and, and if you're having meaningful social interactions with the other. So for me, I went to an international school um, in Malaysia. It was around 1997. And once again, it's one of those things that I think, you know, it's kind of comical now, but back then it was a serious issue. I mean, I came back home to my mom and I asked her, I'm like, you know, mom, can I be friends with the infidel kids? And she looked at me, she's like, what kind of stupid question is that? Since when do we judge people by their religious affiliation? Because my mom had grown up with Christian Coptic neighbors in Khartoum in northern Sudan, 
And to her, like, it wasn't a big issue. Like, why are you even asking the question? But because of my different mindset going to school in Qatar, Qatar of the 90s, just to be clear, not the Qatar of today, which has moved forward, and I, you know, I do give them some, some positive points there. When I was in Malaysia, all of a sudden I'm with Hindus and Chinese and Indians and Malays and Brazilians and Koreans and Iranians and, you know, and Shiites. And um, it, it was quite baffling to me. I went to an all boys traditional school in Qatar and all of a sudden it was boys and girls, all these different nationalities, all these different religions. And it had a huge impact on me in a very positive way. So where people get to experience such similar situations, it has, it's having a great impact in Qatar. Because if you go to university, you're going to interact with other people. Um, you know, it's the case in Malaysia. But if you're not in a cosmopolitan environment, if I can put it that way, then you're not going to have very deep, meaningful interactions, and you're not necessarily going to, you know, change your views. I think there's a survey done here in America. Once again, I don't have the exact figures, but I believe um, there's about 25% of Americans have Muslim friends or know a Muslim in a meaningful way here in the United States. And those who did, didn't have negative views of Muslims in America, whereas those who didn't know any Muslims had no real relationships with Muslims. They tended to slightly, you know, or sometimes in an extreme way have negative views. So it is very important to interact with the wider world. And even if you don't have the opportunity to do that in person, you know, you could do that online. And um, so, yeah, the existence of diversity on its own, I think that's what you're trying to get at, isn't going to create an, an awakening but by virtue of interacting and interacting, you know, that, that does change the situation. So I think, I think overall it has been positive and there is a noticeable difference, but I'm not sure how that can manifest later on itself politically. It's definitely encouraging pluralism and different ways of thinking. But if that pluralism can be enshrined politically, you know, gradually, uh, I don't know. These countries are still autocracies in many ways. Question right in the middle. Thank you so much. Fernando Castillo from Mexico. One question for both opponents. Could you speak up a little bit, please? What do you think about the Russia agreement with Iran, Iraq, and Syria? It's for both. What is the effect from the agreement? Russian agreement with Iran, Iraq, and Syria. Ooh. <laughs> uh, what do I think? Honestly, I can't really comment. Uh, the, the, the truth is I haven't really been up to date on that specific piece of news. I was just reading up about it, but I haven't much, had much time to, to comp contemplate it in any meaningful way. So I can't really offer you a good answer. How about here? Question right here. Can we have a question right here, please? Thank you. Uh, hi, it's Robert Huey. Um, one of the other things the uh, internet brings us is the possibility or the reality of massive online education mm -hmm. with U.S. universities and universities throughout the world beginning to offer uh, what could be very affordable yep. education, which is not the same as somebody coming over here who would have to be from somewhere fairly rich. What impact is this likely to have on the development of uh, liberty and freedom in the Arab and the Muslim world? So that's a great question. It's one I can definitely answer because that's a realm I play within a lot. 
And I, I do get excited by the possibility. So very recently, the Queen Rania Foundation um, launched something called Idrak, which is an online education platform you know, that, that offers MOOCs, massive online, uh, open online courses. And they've managed to translate a lot of courses from Coursera and EDX, from Harvard and MIT, some of the best universities here in the United States, and also some of the best universities locally within the region. And they've offered that in Arabic. And I think it's only been around for about a year and a half or two years, maybe even more. And already they've got a few hundred thousand students. Now, this was just begun recently. The reason I get very excited about stuff like that, and which I think others don't necessarily see the potential of is because number one, I've lived through the impact of exponential technology. Exponential technology is technology that improves exponentially. And if you put it on a big graph, it's sort of like, you know, it kind of goes incrementally like this and it's very deceptive, but very quickly it begins to hit hockey stick growth. And when the hockey stick growth happens, all of a sudden you have this huge rush and huge entry into the mainstream and people go, whoa, where did this thing come out of? And that was very similar with the Arab Spring. We were sort of like the pioneers back in 2006. And it was a small movement, but it grew and it grew and it grew. And then all of a sudden, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and we were just like, wow, where did all of these guys come from? And it became so normative, so mainstream that you would go online and express yourself and have an opinion, which kind of invited a lot of people with stupid opinions, unfortunately, and made the debate, you know, uh, unconstructive in, 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 in many ways. But overall, it was a great thing. So with online education, you have the Queen Rani Foundation launching Idrak. You have another Egyptian startup called Nefham, homegrown Egyptian startup, and they're offering alternative education and even videos for like, you know, high school and middle school students in Egypt, and they're expanding into Saudi Arabia and other countries. You have Tahrir Academy. I mean, I can go on and on and on and on. There are dozens of these startups. I led one, and I'm going to be relaunching it next year. I had to shut it down because I had to get political asylum in Canada. I'm not sure if that was mentioned, but the book got banned in Malaysia, and hence I'm like, okay, I'm out of here. So th there's great, exciting stuff happening. Now, still, though, still, just because the infrastructure is being built just because these startups and companies are emerging does not mean all of a sudden we're going to have a, you know some kind of awakening. We need to include the liberal arts. We need to include the humanities. We can't just be teaching science, technology, you know, and, and math. That's great. That's important. We need scientists. We need engineers. But if we're not teaching the humanities, if we're not teaching the whole concept of citizenship and what it means to have rights, people are going to grow up very literate. They're going to have great technical skills, but they're going to be sitting down consuming government propaganda and forgetting about their own rights. And we don't want to have a situation like that. So I'm one of the voices who's saying, guys, this is great, but we need to include the humanities. We need to include liberal education. And we need to include education also about the diversity of interpretations within Islam to let people know, hey, the Islam you're hearing about from this crazy nutcase over here, yeah, it's not the only one. There are a lot of other alternatives, and you can be free to think and engage with the texts your own way. And um, I think that's going to happen, but it's going to require deliberate, intentional effort. And within five to ten years, you never know. Cell phones are spreading. Smartphones are spreading. You have immense computing power that's making its way to the hands of people. You have a lot of bottom-up innovation happening. As I mentioned, there's also mobile payments coming on board. And so, you know, in that regard, I'm very excited. And whether you have political catastrophes, whether you have a lot of issues going on, I, I, I think these trends are, are very powerful, and they're here to stay, and they're, they're going to continue.
By the way, what, <clears throat> what part of the Muslim world is making the most progress in your view, and which part of the Muslim world are you most hopeful about? Maybe a question for you too. Yeah. Hmm? I think I think you have a better view of the bigger picture and the data. The Muslim world is making the most uh, the most progress on freedom issues or the spread of these ideas, or which part are you most hopeful uh, about? Well, it's a very difficult question, but I think North Africa as a region is doing better than the Middle East, given the situation, the current situation now in the Middle East and at the, the outbursts of violence in the Middle East, which makes it very difficult to promote ideas of liberty and democracy. Uh, working for a think tank, a libertarian think tank based in Morocco and reaching out to uh, young people throughout the Arab region, we see the challenge and difficulty to work in countries like now, like like Egypt. We, we can go, obviously, to Syria. We can go, obviously, to uh, now to Yemen, it's getting more difficult, especially with uh, Morocco's involvement with, with the U.S. and in, in, in the uh, military intervention. So it's becoming more challenging. We can go to a lot of places. We can go to Libya. That's the only in, very unstable place, I think, in, in, in North Africa. But then I think Morocco is doing pretty well. We it's not, it's not that challenging. We still can advance ideas of, of liberty and democracy, and people are more receptive, especially when it comes to economic freedom and market economy. They are, the, they are less dis, uh, receptive, though, when it comes to civil and individual liberty, and, and this is the challenge. And once again, it has to do with uh, state-promoted religious uh, um, interpretation, but we're trying to provide an alternative one, one that exists already, but that is not promoted necessarily by the state. Um, and again, um, uh, here comes what you've uh, pointed at as, as far as online education is concerned. It's, I think I see it as a very efficient alternative to state-subsidized and efficient education. So it's not only through online courses, but also through providing uh, the Arabic-speaking young population with um, with. Arabic uh, materials, uh, materials read, uh, written in Arabic, be it books or um, translated from English or French or also from, from the Western um, uh, literature and civilization or books and excerpts from um, books from Islamic civilization literature. So it's very interesting in, that sen in the sense that you could provide the young people with different narratives of liberty and let them choose what they uh, identify with the most. Um, so, yeah, just to come back and conclude um, um, uh, concerning uh, the, uh, your question, I think that Morocco, Tunisia is on, are on the right path, and I think they are doing better than in the other parts of the world. Of course, now if we talk about, um, particularly about economic freedom, United Arab Emirates is doing... Yep. Better, Jordan is doing better, Qatar is doing better. But if we look at freedom in general, including its um, the civil liberties component, then um, I think the ranking would change. We have time for a couple more uh, questions. We'll take one right here in the aisle. Hi, uh, my name is Xiang Yu Yang. I'm an intern here uh, at Cato Institute. So I work for the immigration um, policy analyst. So um, right now we have a refugee crisis in Europe. So um, a lot of people's question is why 
uh, don't the Arab countries take those uh, refugees from from Syria because apparently they speak the la same language and they have the same culture, religion? Yeah. Uh, what's the reason they don't take the refugees? And uh, what do you think um, the um, Arab countries, um, uh, their hope um, um, to solve this refugee crisis uh, within the Arab and the, the Arab world instead of going on to other parts of the world? May I answer this question? Uh, it's actually interesting to portray the problem that way. I think and I find it to be really unfair because the countries that are now taking the greatest number of refugees are Muslim Arab countries. It's Turkey. Yep. It's hosting, I think, I don't have the exact fi figure, but it's almost 2 million Syrian refugees. Over 2 million. Yeah, over 2 million. And those are the only ones who are registered. And so even if you don't count those who are registered, it's actually beyond 2 million. Yes. And you have Lebanon, a very tiny, tiny country with its huge problems with its own religious group. Groups, not more, almost 19 different religious groups with its own complicated, complex political system who is hosting over a million Syrian refugees. You have, you have Jordan. It's, it's hosting hundreds, almost 1,000. You have, I mean, Arab countries are, and Arab Muslim, mainly Muslim countries, if, Turkey uh, um, being the, the one that, ho that hosts uh, the majority of Syrian refugees are doing a great job in that sense. So it's a bit unfair to, to say that they're, not, they're, they're doing nothing. Now, yes, you're pointing maybe to the Gulf countries, you're pointing to, to Saudi Arabia, um, Kuwait maybe, yeah. and, and, and other countries who are not who are not hosting any refugees. So that that's an issue. Yeah, we can we can talk about this. And it is unfortunate to see that uh, not all Arab countries are, are making efforts to, to host Arab refugees. Now, Europe is really doing little effort to host uh, uh, Syrian refugees, and a lot, a lot died because of closed borders, European closed borders, and you're all familiar with the stories, the daily stories of the little um, Elin, the, the, the Kurdish kid who died on a European, who, found, who was found dead on a European shore. So, yeah, that's my answer. Um, these are the kind of questions that you could sort of articulate in a few seconds, but you know, even five minutes of an answer will not do justice. Uh, she's right. You know, Lebanon is hosting a huge number. Jordan is hosting over six hundred thousand. Khartoum in northern Sudan alone, you know, which is a, a more impoverished country, is hosting, hosting over one hundred and fifty thousand oh. in Khartoum. And they can come and open up businesses, and they're treated as guests. They're not treated as refugees. And actually, Sudan was uh, highly commended for this. And even though it's very rare for me you know, to make uh, positive remarks about the Sudanese government, uh, I think this is one of them where they do deserve some positive credit. And in some ways, it's calculated because these Syrians that are coming in are bringing in their money. They're arriving by plane, right? So they can invest their money, open up businesses. It's good for the economy. They're bringing in currency. It's calculated as well. But, you know, a, a lot of Arab Muslim countries have done, a, you know, a great deal to, to, to welcome Syrian refugees. Now, Saudi Arabia, she mentioned, the Gulf Arab countries, I mean, frankly, they just couldn't care less. They're concerned with their pockets. They're concerned with their security. And they just don't care. And we got to keep something in mind. Syrian refugees did not, start, you know, did not start fleeing to Europe a year and a half ago, two years ago. It only is starting to happen recently. And 
And, and that is because, also to be fair, is because, for instance, countries like Turkey, initially it was like, let's bring them in, let's help them, let's spend money, and Turkey has spent billions. But now it's getting to the point where politically there are some issues that are starting to come up and you know, they don't want to keep accepting more and more, and so they're, they're not getting the best treatment in Turkey in some cases. And so now we start seeing them going to Europe. I think Germany has been immensely generous, um, but Germany has its own unique history. Germany does not have colonial baggage, and I think it was a great act of redemption given the history, and we have to give Germany a lot of credit. You know, it's a bold move, it's a courageous move, it's also a risky move. How are you going to integrate all those numbers socially, culturally? How are you going to handle things financially? Countries like Hungary that are dominated by you know, right-wing parties have been quite nasty in their response. It's not that they don't have legitimate points, I think they do, but the way that they're suggesting those, you know, making those points and the way they're suggesting solutions I think is very troublesome and quite appalling in some cases. And we've got into this situation because some parties on the left have been too politically correct and way too relativist, and we need a more balanced approach. And that's going to have to emerge, and it's going to be a big challenge for Europe. But at the end of the day, what's going to solve this once and for all isn't to figure out what do we do about the refugees, it's to figure out how to stop the war for good. And, and that is going to need some decisive leadership from this country and the rest of the world. Uh, we have time for one last question. We'll take it there in the in the back, please. In the back, in the back. Sorry. Hi, uh, my name is Cassidy, and I'm from the University of Georgia. Um, I was just wondering, and this could be for both of you or either of you. Um, these types of terms that we get a lot, like liberty, democracy, freedom rights, choice, all these kind of things um, are a lot of times framed in a way of like being neo-colonialism um, and being Western-backed. And you see this a lot with anthropologists, cultural relativists, or even propaganda that comes from um, the Middle East in order to try and have a, a, a consolidation of authoritarian power. Um, how do you, what is your response to this idea of like neo-colonialism and then also what do you think is a better way to frame these types of ideals in order to make them more universal and not, and not as they are often uh, put as Western backed? Yeah. I'll let Suad go first and then I'll jump in. <laughs> okay. uh, well, yeah, I think you're right and it's a, a big challenge we face in framing those ideas and, and labeling them. I think that they're not necessarily inherently Western ideas, they're universal ideas, but the West, in general, I'm just calling the West, putting all the West, Western countries together, but the West has credit for having labeled the ideas and, and putting labels on them. So what we're trying to do, depending on the context, depending on the, the people we are addressing, we're trying to free, sometimes, oftentimes, to free them as being universal values that exist also in, in our own Muslim narratives to which people could relate more easily. So that's one way to go, definitely. Otherwise, those ideas, as you said, would be perceived as, as, as post-colonial, as... as, as Imperial, I mean, whatever Western, whatever label you would put on them. So making them, uh, trying to explore um, people's own narratives 
of liberty and each people each community has its own narrative of liberty and trying to to uh, uh, present it to people that would be a a way, an easier way to make them relate to it. And this is actually, we experienced this in Mali where we um, lately implemented a project trying to um, explore ideas of liberty within the, the Muslim society of Mali. So we used basically books and excerpts from the Islamic literature. And then from, from that, we went to explore other books and other types of Western, other Western literature, so... That's my take on it. I appreciate the question very much. I find this relativist attitude within some circles on the left to be very well-intentioned, but when taken slightly to an extreme, and sometimes we see it a lot, it's very troublesome. And it's, it does a huge disservice to people like me People like Suad, because all of a sudden we're westernized. This is an accusation that I've been getting over and over, and quite frankly, I find it appalling and utterly nonsensical. Because the fact is, I'm looking from within my tradition, and as I'm looking from within my tradition and within my heritage, things that have been systematically erased out of the history by dictatorships today and decades ago, I'm also looking at the writings of Thomas Jefferson. And I can engage constructively with the writings of Thomas Jefferson. I can say, you know what? Jefferson was a visionary, was a great political thinker, but he had his shortcomings. The guy had slaves, used to sleep with them, polite term, used to rape some of them, but it doesn't mean I'm going to discard his work. I can still engage with it constructively. I can take the best of ideas and actually integrate them with what I'm working on. Even in terms of lifestyle, if you know, a Muslim woman or an Arab woman, for instance, let's say within the context of Egypt, is enjoying sensual music and is dancing, oh, she's westernized. This is, this is the evil West trying to you know, invade us with, with their culture. Belly dancing has been within the Egyptian culture for I don't know how long. I mean, just a long, long number of years. Never. So... There are things within the culture, within the heritage, there's a, there's a pluralism. And it's not to say that that's the only culture. And that's like, there's a real pluralism that's, that's there, that has been there for such a long time. And by trying to bring it up, by trying to actually give articulation to it, you know, we're trying to move things forward. And then when relativists come of that sort, well-intentioned, so I don't want to demonize them, but I wish they would listen more, um, it does a disservice. So that's a disservice on the left. Another disservice also on the right in some circles is to say Islam has no redeeming qualities. Islam is terrible. Uh, Muhammad, yeah, he was this, he was that, and just throw all kinds of you know, terms and labels without looking at the bigger picture and understanding that Muhammad was a visionary who was ahead of his time and also off it. And so both attitudes on both sides are very troublesome and we need to recognize the multiplicity and the diversity within our own traditions and, and to celebrate them because they're facts and, and we, have to, we have to extract them and, and make good use of them.
And maybe one, one little point I'd like to add. Besides exploring our own narratives of liberty, our own heritage, traditions, um, and as Amir mentioned, there is a lot of, of pluralism and we could very easily discern different narratives, various narratives of liberty. Besides that, there is no wrong, and this is what we're trying also to, to promote, there is no wrong in engaging with other people's ideas and exploring them if, if they are good, if, if they speak to our common sense. We have, we have this beautiful Apple computer from the West and all our smartphones from the West, so we can use whatever we think is good and coming from the West, we could use it for our own benefit. It's not necessarily evil. So these are two, two points and two aspects of the argument we're trying to promote all the time. And again, uh, going back to, to also our heritage and Islamic civilization and saying, well, uh, Arabs basically and Muslims translated a lot of books from, from Greek and, and from Latin, and this is how the whole Islamic civilization came about. It's, it's through translating other people's works and ideas, so there is nothing bad in looking up to other people's ideas and trying to explore the good in them and, and use it. So just going to make one very last quick point. <laughs> Where the, the question that you brought up um, has some credence, and that's why I said I, you know, I know it's well-intentioned, I don't want to demonize it, even though it's a disservice, is the fact that modernity, to a great extent, was introduced to the Muslim world via colonialism. It was pretty much at the barrel of a gun. And that's why, until this day, for the previous generations... You know, for those who are very traditionally, those who are very conservative, any notion, any subtle hints of modernity, not as the fruits of modernity, phones and so on and so forth, but philosophical underpinnings of modernity, any notion of that feels like a threat because of terrible experiences from the past. And I think that has to be also acknowledged, and those are legitimate grievances. Having said that, before colonialism ever came to the Arab Muslim world in the Middle East and North Africa, the Ottoman Empire was there. And the Ottoman Empire, before its collapse was actually undergoing a great modernization effort internally. And I think one of the great catastrophes is that with the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, that organic bottom-up effort, which is indigenous to Muslim, Muslim culture, and used Islamic vocabulary, promoting ideas of liberty and pluralism to really keep up to date, that got lost, the Ottoman Empire collapsed, and that version of modernity, which was homegrown, never really made it to the rest of the Arab world. And instead, modernity was imposed through colonialism. And that's part of the dynamic that we're dealing with today. Thankfully, the younger generation, the shock of colonialism is now far off. And so our own indigenous version of modernity is starting to emerge. And we're looking at countries like Japan, which developed their forms of modernity very successfully over time and that are now indigenous to their culture. So we really have to figure that out internally. And that needs to be supported. Well said, both of you. We're going to have to leave it at that. Thank you for joining us, and please uh, join me in thanking our excellent speakers today.